Imagine you're a developer and you invest millions into a project that's expected to pay great dividends. And when I mean millions, $75 million into a project that's being built on a narrow strip of sand on the South Padre Island. 31 stories, 134 units with unprecedented views. Top appliances, marble and granite installed in these units. It's gonna be amazing. Well, this is a true story of the Ocean Tower. It was expected to be the tallest structure in the Rio Grande Valley. However, in 2008, construction was halted. In fact, the 100 deposits, 100 plus deposits that they had received all needed to be refunded because the ocean tower began to lean. And what engineers had found out was that the tower was built on soil known as substratum expandable clay, known as compressible clay. And so over time, 100 feet down, the pier supports began to shift in this clay. Beams began to crack. Pressure began to mount on the structure. And of course, it began to lean. For those of you who traveled during this time to Pisa, Italy, you wasted your money. You, you could have stayed here in the States and would have seen the same thing. And the passage we'll be looking at today, Jesus is essentially saying to us, not hearing and doing what Jesus says is as foolish as building a house without a foundation. I don't want you to miss this. Not hearing and doing what Jesus says is as foolish as building a house without a foundation. So today we look at Luke, specifically Luke chapter 6. And up until this point, Jesus has gone into the wilderness. He has been tempted. News about him has spread. And in true Jesus fashion, he has angered the religious establishment. And he begins to speak to a large crowd that have come from all over Judea, Jerusalem, all of the coastal regions. And the crowd was very similar to us in many ways. Those amongst the crowd were followers, disciples of Jesus. Those in the crowd were very curious, who is this Jesus of Nazareth and what is he actually going to say today? And there were those in the crowd that simply wanted to touch him, to be healed by him. It's a significant moment in Jesus's ministry, a powerful text. And so like Moses, Jesus had gone up to the mountainside to pray and to pray all night. And in the morning, he literally chooses his 12 disciples and he comes down to the people. The text says he comes to a level plain, which is why this passage is famously known as the Sermon on the Plain. And so today we'll read from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice. It's like a man who built a house on ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and destruction was complete. Today, we're gonna to look at a lot of different texts. Some of it's rather difficult to look at. So hang in there as we go through this today. 
Jesus begins with a significant question that packs a punch. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? In other words, why are you calling me your leader, your teacher, the one in whom you place your allegiance with, but, but you don't do what I say? It would be like Ronald Acuna Jr. on the Braves, and I hope he heals quickly, saying to the Braves organization, I'm hearing what you're saying about the way I'm playing and the way I'm batting, but at the end of the day, I'm just not going to do what you tell me to do. We'd be taken aback. We'd probably think, Ronald, your career is going to be pretty short. I mean, are you really a Braves player? You're not really doing what the organization or the coaches ask you to do. So Jesus asks, why are you giving me this title? Why are you calling me Lord, but you don't do what I say? So it begs the question, what is Jesus asking them to do? What is he asking us to do in order for us to live lives built on a strong foundation that cannot be shaken? So let's go back to a few verses and take a look at what Jesus is actually asking them, asking us to do. In verse 27, he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Holy smokes, what is Jesus asking us to do? First, I want to talk about this notion of love, and then I want to be able to expand on and hopefully help us gain a better understanding of who our enemy might be. Jesus uses this word agape. It's a Greek word that means love, but it's love with teeth. It's love with nails. In other words, it's love in action. It's not necessarily a feeling that you have. For example, if I were to say I love cereal or I love M&Ms, it's not that type of love. Agape love is all based on action, but this idea of agape love doesn't mean that you necessarily need to like or want to like the person. Again, it's all based on actions and how we treat others. It's to will the good of others and not the harm. And love is one of the hardest things we can do as humans. Any of us married out there? By the way, my wife and I just celebrated 10 years of marriage. I had to throw that in. Big milestone for us. So in verse 27 and 28, Jesus is asking them four imperatives. He's asking us to, to love, to do, to bless, and to pray. And each one of them is in the Greek present tense, which means this is supposed to be go ongoing. It's supposed to be continual. It's not a one and done thing. We are to continually and ongoing love our enemies. So, Jesus is commanding us, I want you to love your enemies. So then it begs the question, who is my enemy? If we were to go back to World War II, I know that generation would say, and we would say, hey, very easy to know who the enemy was. We would have said Hitler and probably the Nazis. When 9-11 came around, I remember many would say that terrorists were the enemy during that time. But allow me to share a couple stories that might expand our understanding of who an enemy might be. 
You see, when my son was approximately three years old, I took him to a park across the street from our house and he was playing in the sand and building a sandcastle. And this older boy comes over. He had to have been five or six years old and he begins to play next to my son. And after a while, he looks at my son's sandcastle and he says to him, well, your sandcastle looks bad. And I was a new father at the time, so of course this got me a little riled up. So of course, in my maturity and in my strong Christian faith, I look at this five-year-old boy, six-year-old boy, and I said, um, yeah, well, your sandcastle's terrible. To which I realized, oh my word. So I grab my son, I take him back to the house, and I say to my wife, I share with my wife what, is, what had happened. And she looks at me and she says, what is wrong with you? See, in this moment, this kid was, was being mean to my son. He, and I just wished ill will on this little boy. I wanted to flick this punk kid in the forehead. Fast forward some time later, and my, again, my son was at jujitsu here in Atlanta, and there was another boy, and he was in the same class, and he goes to my son, and he, he purposely stands on his foot, doesn't get off his foot. So, of course, as his protector, and uh, in this moment, I tap on the glass, and I do one of these numbers to the boy. I'm looking at you, and I'm watching you. Of course, he gets off my son's foot. And it was another moment where, gosh, I just wanted to go in there and do a little jujitsu on this kid. Why? Because he was hurting my son. He was, he was intentionally trying to hurt my son. You might think, well, that, that might apply to you, but I don't know if that really necessarily applies to me. Well, let me, let me give another example. Rather than use political terms, because I know we need a break from all that, uh, I'm going to label one side of the room, if you were in the, in the, here in the sanctuary, as the mangoes. We'll use youth soccer names. And on this side, we're going to use the oranges. And the mangoes and the oranges, they get along fairly well. But over time, when different subjects come up, their discussions get a little bit more heated. And the mangoes make a comment online on Facebook that the oranges don't appreciate at all. And so the oranges begin to make a comment below theirs, and it's a little bit more intense. And then all of a sudden they see each other in public and the passive-aggressive posture increases with one another. And over time, they get a little bit more heated over divisive things and the rhetoric increases between the two. And before you know it, the mangoes have such disdain for the oranges that they absolutely hate one another. They don't even talk. They don't even communicate. They want harm done to one another. They wish the worst for each other. In essence, they have become enemies. You see, your enemies can be anyone who has wronged you or hurt you or hurt someone that you deeply love. An enemy can be a dictator. An enemy can be your spouse at times or a mouthy teenager in your home. It can be someone who cuts you off in traffic a colleague that is outselling you and outdoing you at work and making you look bad, and your disdain is growing for them. See, your enemy can be a competing company that you just wish, to, wish that they would go bankrupt. It might even be a family, a mom and a dad who always seem to have it together, the perfect family. And you're thinking to yourself, why can't something bad happen to them? Why do they have it so good and so easy? My enemy has been a five-year-old boy whom I did not even know. My enemy has been a colleague. My enemy at times has been those on Facebook I disagree with. And my enemy has been my wife at moments. I love you, honey. 
So who is our enemy? It is those we wish ill will or harm to and those we withhold God's agape love from. Your enemy is those you wish ill will to or harm and to those we withhold God's agape love from. And we've all had enemies and we're all going to have enemies at one point or another. That's the reality this side of heaven. So why does he want us to love our enemies? For one, it's at the heart of who God is. God is love and he wants us to be a people who love well. Loving our enemies has the power to change communities, relationships, and the world, and it keeps us from prisons of hatred. Loving our enemies has the power to heal and change communities, relationships, and the world, and it keeps us from prisons of hatred. So Jesus says, and I'll reiterate, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? I want you to love your enemies. And as one theologian says, when you love that which you hate, it ceases to be the object of hate. Can you imagine who showed up that morning and said to themselves, gosh, I came just to touch him and just to be healed. This is all a bit much for me. I don't know if I'm in. And if you're feeling that way this morning, that's okay. Hang in there. Well, in the next few verses, Jesus says something even more perplexing and confusing, and it's confused Christians for decades. And in our understanding of the text, it almost sounds like Jesus is asking us to just roll over and get bulldozed by people. And so we need to know a little bit more about the first century for us to really grasp what Jesus is saying here. First, we need to know that in this culture, it operated solely on the base of reciprocity. This idea of honor and shame. And honor was everything. Your, your social capital in these type of societies was the most important thing to you. You see this in many Asian, some African and Middle Eastern countries. And if you were of low status, whether it was related to your family heritage, your vocation, or even your health, you had this sense of shame and everybody in the community knew it and saw it. Because your honor and shame, they were essentially based on the perception of the community of you. Again, it was related to your status, not necessarily always tied to your wealth, but your heritage, your vocation. Your honor was everything. Secondly, the ancient world operated on a system of reciprocity, as I said, that you were to be treated the same way that you would want others to treat you. Essentially, it was known as lex teleonis. Can you say that with me? Lex teleonis. And this was foundational for all social relationships. For example, if you had killed my ox, I could come back and take out your ox. I could kill your ox. If you were to cut off my arm, I then could go and cut off your arm. And the whole goal of lex teleonis was to limit revenge. It was to limit vengeance. In other words, 
If you killed my ox, I couldn't come back and kill your entire family. And this was a huge step forward. Before this, if you cut off my arm, I can wipe out your whole family. Again, it was a huge step forward. I see this with my kids sometimes. One will take the toy from one. What happens? The other one takes the other toy and we've got ourselves a little bit of a situation there. And this came all out of text from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, and Exodus. Let me give you an example from Leviticus 24. It says, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. And anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. And anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury, and it goes on and so forth. But by Jesus' time, the whole notion of eye for an eye actually turned into monetary compensation. So you cut off my arm, you kill my ox, you're monetarily compensating for, for that. This was essentially based on fairness and justice. And I want you to have this in the back of your mind as we look at these next two verses for us. And again, our goal is to understand what Jesus is saying and what we must do in order to have a strong foundation, lives built on a strong foundation in Jesus that can withstand the floods and the storms. If loving your enemy was hard, the next part can be a little bit more difficult to grasp. So hang in there for me. Let's dive in. Jesus goes on to say in Luke 6, 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. Sounds rather confusing. Let's shed some light on what's taking place here. First, to be struck on the right cheek was to be backhanded. So you would be hit with the backhand of someone's hand. And it was the most insulting thing you could do to someone in that particular society. It was degrading. It was humiliating. Essentially, you were treating someone as an inferior, someone who was less than you, and it, was, it would absolutely bring shame to them. It was such a big insult that if you went up to someone and you hit them with the back of your hand in an unjust situation, you could get fined four times the amount if you were to hit them with your forehand. I mean, it was such a big deal, and we don't grasp it quite quite in our culture, but in theirs, it was a big deal to hit someone. You wouldn't even use your left hand to hit someone because that was the one you used to go to the bathroom with. There's verses that told you that you wouldn't slap someone. And it was forbidden to touch someone with your left hand in that culture. So this text that we're looking about, at about hitting someone in the cheek, slapping them with a the backhand, is all about insulting someone and bringing them shame. So in this mind-blowing moment, Jesus is saying to this person, saying to the one who's doing the hitting, if you're going to hit me again, you're going to hit me with your forehand because that's what would have happened next. And you need to do it in a way, or you're not doing it in a way, you're doing this because you're showing me dignity. He, the person doing the hitting, is now has to recognize you as an equal rather than as an inferior. Jesus isn't saying to be passive in any way in this text. And such an act for someone to say or to have you turn the other cheek would have caused the person doing the hitting to literally stop in their tracks and to think about, oh my gosh, am I going to do this again? 
Am I actually going to hit this person and see them as my equal? Again, saying, if you're going to hit me, I'm going to turn the other cheek, and you're going to hit me as an equal, not as an inferior. The person doing the hitting would have been shamed in front of the whole community. Why? Because they would have been seen as the oppressor. The person doing the evil act. As one theologian says, Jesus is showing a disarming way of showing nonviolent agape love. Christians are not being taught an impossible ideal of not resisting evil, but are instead being taught to shame and resist the sinful pattern of retaliation by violent revengeful means. It's a mind-blowing moment. It would have been a shocking moment. And Jesus, I need you to know this, Jesus is not asking us to simply take it. I know many of us have experienced abuse at the hands of others. And Jesus did not want you to experience that. In fact, if you're in a relationship now where that's happening, you need to get out. You see, there are moments we need to protect ourselves and we need to protect the ones that we love. Again, Jesus is asking us not to just be passive, but to demonstrate non-violent agape love, exposing the evil of the one doing the hitting. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, if someone takes your cloak, do not withhold your shirt from them. In Jesus' day, you had two garments. You had your cloak, which is better translated your tunic, which was your outer garment, And you had your inner garment, which was your shirt. And people who were poor would often use their coat as collateral if they ever borrowed money for someone who was rich. They also used their tunic as a pillow and a blanket. It's all they had. So if a poor person borrowed money, they would give their tunic as collateral to the person. And that money that they had borrowed could be repaid back at any moment. And if they couldn't repay it back... The person could sue to keep the tunic. This wasn't always the case. And in this particular moment, this is another moment of shame, public shame. And there's actually a law in Exodus, Exodus 22. It says you simply couldn't take someone's tunic. So in another instance of public shaming, Jesus is demonstrating another moment of non-retaliatory agape love. It's causing the person oppressed to maintain their dignity. However, if he gave his shirt away, the person would be naked, which would have been taboo and somewhat humiliating. But again, they're saying to the person, you need to see me as an equal. They're exposing them for the oppression that they're giving to this person. And the hope would be, in both instances, that the community would step in and recognize what is happening is actually wrong. That the one doing the hitting, the one taking the tunic, is actually the one who's evil, the one who's wrong. And the hope would be that the oppressor would give it back. They'd be humiliated. They'd be seen for who they are. Again, the victim's not passive. Shows not responding when your honor is being shot at. My friends, this is hard stuff. Which is why I think Jesus uses the metaphor of soil clay in this region to dig down deep, specifically during the summertime, has been known as digging into bronze. 
It's hard to love your enemies. It's not easy to turn the other cheek or to give a tunic. But loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, giving away your tunic, have the power to change communities, relationships, and the world. But more so, Jesus describes that when we build our house on a solid foundation of rocks, that when the floods and the storms come in life, and they will, that the house, your house, it won't be shaken. We'll be able to withstand those things. What does he mean by this? Let me tell you of a story of a man born in Britain, and at the age of 16, he was kidnapped by Irish raiders, taken from his home, taken from his family, and brought back to Ireland, put into slavery as a herdsman. And one night he was asleep, and he had a voice say to him that it's time for him to depart, to go back to his homeland. And so he left. He had a 200-mile journey in which he fled, and he got captured again and stayed with his captors for two months. Eventually, he got to the boat and returned to England to be with his family. This is the story of St. Patrick. And when he got home, he had another vision, another dream. And in this dream, a man came to him with a lot of letters. And in the letters it said, We beg you, holy youth, that you shall come and shall walk again among us. So Patrick prayed for months and months. And he made the decision that he was going to go back to Ireland. He was going to go back to his enemies. The people who actually took him from his house and put him into slavery. So what did Patrick do? He went. He preached the gospel. And these barbarians, these Irish raiders, began to receive and accept Jesus. This is where we get Celtic crosses from. Patrick demonstrated God's agape love. He heard what Jesus said to love your enemies, and he did it. And an entire nation, communities, relationships were changed because he heard and did what Jesus said. He was able to withstand the floods and the storms that came his way from his oppressors, his captives, because he loved his enemies. He did what Jesus commanded and said. This is also why Diedrich Bonhoeffer was able to go to his death with confidence and assurance in the ways in which he loved his Nazi enemies. Why? Because he loved his enemies. His house, his faith was built on a strong foundation in Jesus and he was not shaken. This is why Martin Luther King Jr., after his house was bombed, was able to respond with non-retaliatory agape love. Well, he wasn't passive, but he didn't trade evil for evil. He was able to withstand the storms, the floods that came his way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? For if you did, you would love your enemy. You would turn the other cheek. You would give them your tunic. Because when you do that, 
It has the power to change communities, relationships, and the world. And when the torrents and floods come, and they will, you'll be able to withstand them because you have done what Jesus has commanded and you can truly call him Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, you've given us a text that is powerful, that is hard. It's hard to do, to bless, to pray, to show love to those who mistreat, those who might be our enemies. So Jesus, we would ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, with the love that we do not have, so that we might in turn listen, hear, and do what you ask, and build our lives and our faiths on solid rock and a solid foundation in you, so that when the floods and the storms come and they shake our lives, they rattle our lives and our houses, we have put on the character of Christ, we've put on this deep sense of love in us that we can withstand. And we ask this all in Jesus' name.